So welcome to the third episode of the Capgemini Cybersecurity Podcast Series, where we are discussing security aspects in regards to the retail industry. In episode one and two, we touch base on the threat landscape of the retail industry and the challenges on cloud adoption. So I'm your host, Peter Hansen, and today we are focusing more specifically on the security aspects in regards to usage of Docker and Container. So with me from UK is once again, Lee. Hi, Lee. Hi, Peter. Nice to be back. Welcome back. And in addition to Lee, welcome, James. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Fun facts. Lee, have any fun facts for us? Yeah, it's kind of, kind of fun. I was doing a bit of research before we started today, and I looked up the number of CVE entries, so common vulnerabilities and exposures, so the number of vulnerabilities that have been found in, in Docker. So since 2014, there are 53 entries in the CVE database relating to Docker. Uh, that compares to 33 for VMware ESXi during the same time frame. Uh, not ascribing any value judgments to those numbers. I just thought they were quite interesting and fun and definitely facts. Thank you, Lee. So, James? So, I'm going to go a bit lighthearted for fans of 90s sci-fi, and that is that Kubernetes itself is based off an internal Google project that was called Borg, and the seven kind of sticks on the Kubernetes logo are a reference to the seven of nine character from the Star Trek Voyager series. Okay. And I found some facts about the Docker Hub database breach. So it was actually breached in the end of April this year, and approximately 190,000 accounts may have been exposed. So just because it's Docker and containers doesn't automatically mean it's safe. So going into the subject, James, what benefits do you see containerization bringing from a security perspective? So there are quite a few different benefits. And um, one thing I'll just say to start with is that these, and I think when most people talk about containers these days, they're talking about Docker-type containers. Um, There are other kinds of containers, and I was using containers back on Solaris in 2009, around about then, and they're quite different. But Docker containers have some specific kind of ways in which they work. And I think there's two streams to the benefits they give. Firstly, from a technical perspective, Docker has this very kind of one process per container model. Um, And what that means is that you get actually kind of strong isolation between different processes. So as previously, if you had a server of VM with lots of different processes running, you might be running lots of different Tomcat instances on there, for instance. A breach in one could potentially lead to um, vulnerabilities with the others. Um, Docker helps by kind of breaking that up. So each process lives in its own little bubble. You could do it in a VM, but obviously there's a lot more overhead involved with that. Um, The other thing as well is the the container model of only including the the kind of binaries and libraries that are required to run an application reduces the overall attack surface. Um, And coupled to that, there is that smaller size makes those components easier to scan and easier to secure. I think the main thing that pushes security with Docker are actually some of the changes in development and operations culture and practice that that drives, however. So things like one process per container model, that has to be picked up by the teams. Um, but if they do that, it does help in separating concerns out. And it pushes a microservice design, which, again, kind of helps on the security front. Docker containers also give an easy way to, to update things. So if you have a doc file and you're pulling in from kind of a base Ubuntu version, for instance, it's quite easy to update the tag when new vulnerabilities are discovered. And it, it puts tools and 
the actual how things are going to run production in the hands of the delivery teams very early on. So it shifts things left. So they can build and test with the same configuration of things that will be used in a production environment. So do you have anything to add to that, Lee? Uh, I think the only thing I'd say really around containerization is that I think there's still a little bit of a misconception out there at times where people do conflate containers and VMs. And containerization is not virtualization. Uh, Mike Coleman put out a blog post back around 2016, I think, which kind of explained how he views that difference between containerization and VMs. So he views uh, virtualization as living in-house. You have much more control over your boundary, uh, whereas containerization he sees as living within an apartment block. So you have much more reliance upon shared infrastructure. So in his apartment block analogy, you have shared plumbing, shared power, etc. So you are more likely to be aware of interference from your neighbors in that kind of apartment block than you are with the house model. And I think that's true when it comes to security as well. So you have to be aware that with containers, you do still share that base operating system. So there is still that risk of interference from other tenants on that on that operating system as well. Uh, but I do take on board all the points that James made as well, because I do like the way you can uh, uh, reduce your attack surface by minimizing the number of interfaces and dependencies the UX, uh, that you need to consider when you start containerizing your applications. Yeah, and, and I, I agree to that as well. And, and that containerization has a lot of uh, a lot of advantages. Um, what I don't like is is that people tend to believe that all control goes out to the developers. We even had one of the big players within containerizations um, presenting to us who, who said straight out that that in a few years we don't need server ops because the developers can do everything. So would you agree to that, James? No, I, I don't think that's true personally. And it's it's quite interesting because I think containers have shifted a lot of responsibility. And, and I think they do work well with the, the DevOps model itself in having you know cross-discipline teams who, who are aware of how things work, work from kind of both sides of the fence um, to some extent. But you know, part of the problem I've seen, and that actually falls on from, from what Lee was saying there, is that a lot of people don't understand how Docker works. So I do quite a lot of kind of interviews with DevOps engineers. And when you ask them, what's the difference between a container and a traditional virtual machine, they'll come back with things like it's faster, it's lighter, but they won't actually know how it works kind of under the hood. And I think that's important to know to use Docker successfully. I think there's a lot of things um, that you can do badly if you don't realize how Docker different differs from VMs. And the, the kind of orchestration of um, containers is where a lot of the value is coming at the moment. So using things like Kubernetes. Um, and, and Kubernetes is a big system by itself. It's not, from my experience, the kind of thing that um, developers would want to get involved in with. It's the kind of thing that does fall to more traditional kind of platform teams to build up the skill set around that and to manage that. So I don't see... I don't see them replacing or removing kind of ops from the overall structure. I think you will still have people who need to know how things work that delivery teams won't need to um, be aware of. And while some of that gets gets abstracted, the, the tools that allow that abstraction, like Kubernetes themselves, are you know they're, they're quite big things to run. It's not just a case of oh we'll fire up a Kubernetes cluster and that will be suitable for our production environment. And security teams can help as well by giving the developers the tools that they, they need, especially if you are starting to think about moving towards DevSecOps. So there are tools like the, the runtime application self-protection tooling, 
that that can help and also things like cloud workload protection platforms as well uh, both kind of fairly new types of security technologies that can help to uh, secure these kind of containerized environments but it is down to security to say yes we recognize all these new ways of working and here are tools that you can use to help you work in those ways rather than uh, just maybe getting a little bit confused yeah, and, and and one of our big big global partners, Trend Micro, actually have specialized products to to do a scan before before it's actually being deployed. So I think we we have to redefine quite a lot how we implement the technical security controls, and also making sure that that the non technical security controls actually get adapted to uh, adapted and and definitely considered um, when when using the technology as such. And certainly that just to dive in there because I, I can hear James getting ready to dive in so I thought I'd go first. Uh, you have to start thinking about patching as well. Uh, so patching and containerization is a really good security benefit at that point because you don't really need to go in and patch your, your running applications. You just get a new container with the up-to-date things in there and take down the old one, spin up the new one. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, so you, you do have the technical side of things that the platform team will want to get involved in. So putting those kind of container scanning tools in. Uh, so the open source world, you've got things like Claire, you have um, the commercial tools like kind of Twistlock and Aqua that can do a lot of that work. But that's kind of the, the kind of technical solution. But there needs to be a discussion with the developers because if you let your developers just go off and start grabbing kind of containers from everywhere and building them in the way they see fit, you'll end up with a huge number of containers in your, in your estate that you need to manage, you need to track, and you need to patch. And I think one of the things we've been trying to do recently on my project is actually just to kind of cut down the number of different kind of base containers out there and say, look, these are the ones we're going to use. We should agree on these. And and also make sure people are picking picking the right containers because quite often people will they'll see everyone using Alpine. So Alpine is a really popular kind of container base image um, because it's very small. So they'll pick it and think, that's great, but I need all these extra tools into it. So by the time they finish putting their Docker file together, it's kind of 300 lines long. And the little Alpine image now has hundreds of extra dependencies they've pulled in. And what that means is instead of just updating your kind of Docker container when there's a new release, they've actually then got to go through all their um, Docker files and make sure, actually, now this SSH version we're pulling in needs updating and this, these are the set of libraries we're pulling in here and you know the, all these things that we're doing with an APK kind of install. They all need updating now manually. So you've got to have those kind of discussions with the delivery teams to make sure they know how they should be putting things together and that you know, you've got some alignment between the teams on what they're using. Yeah, and I think that is a common theme through all the different podcasts is that need around governance and making sure that people know what they should be doing, having the, the common set of principles out there, because otherwise you'll end up with various forms of sprawl, be that VM sprawl or container sprawl or SaaS sprawl, you've got to have some way of maintaining a level of control. And that in this kind of uh, DevOps environment has got to be a joint endeavor. Yeah, I mean, the need for standardization and control and hardening, etc., that doesn't really disappear just because it's another technology. So that was actually almost at the end of this pod. So I would like you, James, to do some closing remarks where this is heading in terms of, of container and microservices? So I think it's definitely driving the shift to microservices. I've seen that from a, a few different um, projects I've been involved on recently. I think 
teams and businesses to some extent are starting to realize that it fits that model nicely and it allows them to iterate quickly which is obviously becoming you know more important and you know that's that's more visible for businesses to to get that ability to quickly get features out into production um i think at a a technical level there is some interesting stuff going on around things like micro vms so um aws released firecracker last year um and it'll be interesting to see whether that goes because that is possible that we'll move more slightly away from the containers more to potentially containers within micro vms so you actually kind of ramp up the um the separation between the different processes by running them inside kind of a firecracker uh, VM. So that that kind of approach is something that I think I'll be watching for a little bit and we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Thank you, James. And Lee? I think there is that other kind of elephant in the room at the moment, which is around function as a service. So things like Amazon Lambda, uh, Azure Functions, Google Cloud Functions. And if you're going to go down that microservices route, do you want that that kind of pain of building your own Kubernetes uh, Docker infrastructure? Do you want to go off and buy the one that's that's pre-built? I accept there are things you can do at the moment uh, with the containerization you can't necessarily do with serverless at the moment. But I do feel that the conversation is very similar to the conversations we we're having around 2009, 2010, in terms of do I keep all my workloads on-premises or do I let them go to the public cloud? And it'll be interesting to see over the next few years as to how that conversation ends up. Thank you. So from me, Peter, as well as James and Lee, that's all we have time for today on this episode, where we are focusing on the retail sector and, and, and some of the challenges that, that is presented for them. Uh, I would like to thank you, Lee, for once again joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. And James, to join the both of us for this episode. Thank you very much. Uh, I would also like to thank you for listening in wherever you are in the world. Um, You will find future episodes in the Capgemini channel through your favorite pod player. If you enjoyed this, please also share with social media. Thank you. Thank you.